this is Stephanie Hansen, and you are listening to The Makers of Minnesota, the podcast where we talk to cool people doing cool things in the state of Minnesota. And I am sitting here in a coffee shop, Nina's <laughs> Coffee Shop in St. Paul with Rob Baith, mm-hmm. and he is the founder of Folly Coffee. Mm-hmm. And if I say third wave coffee, will you explain to the listeners what that is? Because I think it's right. new enough that people don't know. Yeah. Um, so third wave refers to obviously the kind of three big movements that have happened with coffee in the U.S. Uh, first wave refers to kind of like your Folgers days, gas station coffee, like really low grade coffee. Before it was really something you'd get at a cafe. You just make it out of a tin at home. That's your first wave of coffee. Okay. Then in the 80s, when Starbucks enters the scene... Uh, was it the 80s that they came on the scene? Yeah. yeah. Wow. So Starbucks actually started as a uh, retail shop selling beans. Howard Schultz finds this shop, goes, this is so cool, uh, goes to Italy, goes, we need to be doing, doing espresso. They say no. The owners say no. Eventually, he starts his own chain and then ends up buying Starbucks, rebrands his own chain. and then So, so Starbucks starts in the 80s, uh, bringing that second wave of coffee. So at the time... Uh, there was really nowhere you'd go to get espresso, lattes, coffee uh, of any quality at a cafe. And so that's kind of the second wave of coffee. And like obviously that's branched out to a lot of different roasters doing that second wave style here in the Midwest. Like Caribou is a huge player. Of course. Um, like on the West Coast, Pete's Coffee. Yep. Um, that'd be your second wave of coffee. And then third wave refers to... Uh, the third wave of roasters really started heavily on the West Coast, uh, but the third wave style of coffee tends to be a very high-quality bean. So if specialty coffee is anywhere that's an 80-plus rated bean, which that's rated at origin and like cupped and rated on 80-plus, uh, third-wave ro- roasters tend to focus on like that 85, 90-plus, and then roasting it much, much lighter. And so when you roast uh, darker, what you're tasting is the actual roast on the bean. It's kind of, I compare it to like a hamburger. If you roast it really, or not roast it, but if you grill it really dark, you're gonna, it's going to taste bitter. Charred, and, yeah. yeah ch- charred mm-hmm, the and, char. And, exactly. Um, and so the third wave style is roasting beans at a much lighter level so that all you're tasting is the actual bean itself. You're tasting the origin. You're tasting where it's grown. You're tasting the altitude it's grown, the processing method. And you'll find that these coffees uh, tend to have much, much less bitterness, if none at all. They tend to have very like vibrant and noticeable flavor characteristics. And they're less oily, it seems like. Yeah, so in, in the roasting process, um, there are two periods where the beans audibly crack. You know, gases and CO2 escape the bean rapidly, causing an audible crack. At first crack, this is really the first time that you could grind and brew it. And this is where most third wave roasters live, is right after first crack. Later on, as you've developed the profile of the bean with like time and temperature, uh, you get a second crack. And that's where you start to get into dark roasted coffee. And oils uh, occur on the outside of the bean after second crack. Okay. And so it's, it's funny because uh, we actually had someone review one of our coffees as low because they said you have dry beans. I thought about that actually when I first saw your beans and I opened them because they're different in color than you're sort of taught to look at coffee. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, In dark roasted coffee, oil on the bean is a sign of freshness, but you're going to get bitter, dark flavors yes in uh light roasted coffee no oil is not an indicator of freshness or not like really the aroma the 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 the, the, 
the taste of the coffee is going to be your indicator of freshness. And so that's why instead of putting a best buy date on our bags of coffee, we put our roast date. So you know how many days from the roasting you are as opposed to uh, a lot of the second wave style roasters put a best buy date just to be like, oh, this isn't expired. Right. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So obviously you're a coffee nerd and I say that with love because <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you've just gone through a little bit of a nerd lit there. <laughs> Tell me how you decided that you were going to get out of college and start a coffee business because it seems so competitive. Yeah. Um, so right out of college, um, I got a job doing sales for Boston beer, uh, primarily known for Sam Adams. Uh, they also have uh, Angry Orchard, Twisted Tea. I was actually still around when we launched Truly, which sure. is now this its own thing. Is that owned by Sam Adams? Yeah, it's a Boston Beer Company product. I did not know product. that. Okay. Yeah, uh, truly is. And so I was in uh, north of Chicago. I was born and raised in Plymouth in Minnesota, but uh, ended up in Chicago in the uh, north side, just like feet on the street sales. Uh, and it was while I was with Boston Beer that I became just a huge beer nerd, like craft beer nerd. Just got sure. deep into it. Um, got my certified Cicerone, literally learned to, to cook and pair food. And it's like, so I was just talking about this with Jeff while we were packaging yesterday. It's like Jeff is your roaster. Uh, no, Jeff is our um, coffee buyer at Folly. So Got he it. does all of our QA, all of our tasting and profiling of our coffees. And we were talking about that it's interesting. The more you learn about anything related to flavor, the more it makes you interested in everything having to do with flavor. So the more I learned about beer, the more it made me interested in food and like how cooking works and why do things taste differently when you cook them in different ways and how to pair them with beer and... Um, couple years in Chicago, I got promoted down to Champaign, Illinois, and it was at this time that uh, a co-worker of mine who used to sell specialty coffee approaches me and is like, what up with your coffee, bro? And I'm like, what do you, what do you mean? It's just like this, just grab whatever's closest. He's like, no, here's a list of roasters you're allowed to go to now. Like you can't be into high end beer, food, all this stuff and, n- and, and not be, be dr- into coffee and be drinking that. And so, um, Went to Sump Coffee in St. Louis, which is still one of my favorite roasters to this day. Got really fortunate that that first cup I tried was just at that shop. It was amazing. And just immediately I was like, what did you put in this? What did you do to this? And they're like, it's just the, the, the quality of coffee that we source. It's how we roast it very intentionally to bring out these flavors. And I was just hooked instantly. And so immediately all of my free time was I want to go find every roaster that's doing this. I want to try every origin. I want to see what all the differences between all these coffees are. And I was doing that well for like a year and I did a couple trips out to the West Coast just to go check out the coffee scene there. And as you're doing this, are you thinking this is a business I want to be in? Or were you thinking you wanted to be an entrepreneur? Or were you just literally doing it as a lifestyle for fun? I was just doing it as a lifestyle for fun. I, I really liked working at Boston Beers. You know, it's pretty autonomous. I obviously had, I enjoyed uh, the beer scene and was still way into it. Luckily, dialed back a little bit so I wasn't that guy at the party anymore. But but um, I was just doing it for fun. But it was it, it was when I went out to the West Coast that I I saw what it was out there. Because when you go to Seattle, you would expect coffee. Ev- you yeah. expect everybody Starbucks. You would think everybody's pumped about Starbucks. This is our hometown brand. This is all we drink, and it's not the case. Uh, the younger generation of coffee drinkers, they're all drinking third-wave style coffee. And so these roasters that are doing it out there, those are the places people are talking about. So I went out there. I saw the same thing in Portland. I saw the same thing in San Francisco over the period of like the, that year. And that's where it kind of clicked. Uh, and one of the things I'd learned being in food and beverage was that food and beverage trends tend to be 10 to 15 years behind in the Midwest. Mm-hmm. And so I, that's where it kind of triggered the business side of me that I go, 
okay, I got to look into this. And what were you studying at that time, or what was your college degree in? Uh, college degree was in psychology. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Again, that was just... Something super useful. <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, when you're talking to bar owners all day... And that sales, could be, you sure. Know, sales could be very useful. Um, and so when I came back, that's where the seed had kind of been planted in the back of my mind. And I started to look on the business side of things. And I noticed that the trends of the high end of coffee uh, were remarkably similar to what happened in craft beer uh, in the uh, er late 2000s, early 2010s, when it was really booming. Mm -hmm. And it kind of became this thing that I said, why aren't there more people doing this in the Midwest? Uh, At that time, I don't know that I definitively decided, but I go, I'm going to look into this. And over the next two years, I tried to actively convince myself not to do it. I tried to find every reason I could, but I just loved it so much. And it made so much sense that this continues to rise. And the amount people are spending on really good coffee continues to increase. The number of coffee drinkers remains remarkably stable over time. And, um, yeah, so I ended up quitting my job in uh, May of 2017, uh, and moved back in with my parents uh, that summer. And uh, I ended up meeting Ken, who's now our head roaster at a farmer's market. And I was doing sample roasting for fun, like one-pound batches, just because I enjoyed it. And uh, But it's when I met Ken that it was like he's going to be the commercial roaster because uh, he had bought a uh, a roaster called Diedrich IR-12, American-made roaster, commercial roaster from a flooded cafe, rebuilt it himself and was using it to roast for farmer's markets. Cool. And I tasted his coffee and instantly was like, he's selling it out of the back of his car at a farmer's market. I'm yeah. like, this is really good. Like, and then he told me the story about the roaster and on the spot, I was like, can I come roast with you sometime? And like, <laughs> luckily enough, having met him for the first time, he agreed to it. And after going out a few times and just seeing how intentionally he was and his process, uh, I kind of pitched him on what I wanted to do with lighter roasted coffee and bringing it, uh, bringing it to the Midwest and bringing more people into it, not coming from a place of like snobbery or uh, pretentiousness, but just like, Hey, this is really good. You should try it. Yeah, and inviting people to come along on the journey. Yeah. So uh, did you have money saved, or like, how did you start the company? What kind of money did you use to start? Yeah, so I had some savings built up from Boston Beer. Uh, when I moved back in, obviously moving in with the parents, the classic millennial move, uh, they were really helpful in that move. I had to convince them that this was not just some harebrained scheme. Sure. I had a full business plan vetted out before even proposing it to them. They let me move in, which was hugely helpful. I had some savings built up, but... Uh, part of the deal with Ken is I had to help him build out his roaster. So we had to, us two physically build the space to be food safe compliant. And so during that time I was working four jobs, uh, my high school strength coach hooked me up with, uh, a, a football coaching job for the summer. Sure. So from the mornings until like 8am to one, I would do that. And then I would bar back and bartend at night and that place closed at 11. And then I would lift until like, you know, two or three, cause the surge rates were really high. And then on my nights off, I would go out and help Ken build. So we'd build out the space like two or three days a week. And so that's kind of how I was able to continue to build up savings, pay just the few bills I had because I sure. didn't really have a life. Because <laughs> <laughs> I had no life, so I couldn't spend any money. That's one way of saving. Yeah. So you and Ken decide that this is a thing. Mm-hmm. Did you right away, like how do you, did you know, did you start packaging in like brown paper bags like everybody does? Because now... Did you? How did you get your brand, Folly? Because it's a very edgy 
interesting brand that feels like a beer, frankly. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I got really fortunate. Um, my sister um, knew someone from college. And he was a really talented designer, fresh out of college with no job. And so he was trying to build his portfolio. And I trust my sister's opinion on design better than I trust my own. So if she vouches for him, I'm all in. And what he did is just send me every brand that you think is cool. And then send me every brand that you don't want to be like. And then tell me like what it is about these things that you like and what you don't like. So I sent him just like a 15, 10, 15 page Word document of all these different brands of different fonts that I thought were cool. Uh, with, with the idea that I don't want it to be pretentious. So um, the, the most memorable one that I just think is branding so cool is Steve Aoki, DJ. Uh, I'm not even that into EDM. But every time I see his brand, you're just like it pops off. Sure. Yeah. And so that, it was like things like that. It's not necessarily coffee brands. And then on the things I didn't want to be like, you like your high end brands, like your Gucci, your Prada, your Rolex, that, that they do a great job of eliciting like the highest end, but can also be intimidating. And the only parameter I gave him is the name Folly. I had picked at that point. And why did you pick it? When um, James J. Hill was building the Stone Arch Bridge, everybody in Minneapolis thought it was a terrible idea. So they called it Hill's Folly. Mm -hmm. And so uh, that's how we picked the name. And so the only parameter I gave them is I, uh, I wanted to incorporate the Stone Arch Bridge into the logo. So our, our main logo, the kind of grumpy, smiley face looking guy, his mouth is an outline of the Stone Arch Bridge. So it's, it's kind of... Um, a shout out to Minnesota and Minneapolis that we're really proud of being local, but we don't want to be super in your face that don't buy Folly because we're local, buy it because it's really good coffee and we also happen to be local. So now you get a brand, you've got the coffee. Where was the first place that you got them to carry your coffee? So as um, Ken and I were physically building out the space in Silver Lake, which is about an hour west of Minneapolis, uh, we were roasting our first batches. This was really how Ken and I were getting to know each other and our taste differences. And uh, we were profiling. And finally, we locked on a profile on our first coffee that we were roasting. And so I started taking this to local retailers. Uh, had no packaging at that point. Had like the first digital rendering of what it might look like. But I mean, I was bringing coffee in the free sample bags that like bag companies send you. <laughs> I, I, Eastside Food Co-op was our first company, uh, our first customer, and I, I remember this vividly. I didn't realize it until I was like almost in the meeting that the sample bag I had used was a dog food bag. That <laughs> it, it's like. It can work for coffee beans, but I'm giving him our coffee in a dog food sure, bag. But I'm sure, just like, just try. I had it brewed. Fortunately, he was able to taste it before looking at the dog food bag. But uh, so we launched in uh, Eastside Food Co-op. What did it feel like when they agreed to take your coffee? It like was your first win? Bizarre, because at that point, it's still not real. I'm 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 coaching like seventh to ninth graders in the morning and like w washing people's wine glasses at night and taking hammered people home until two a.m. and you know they're committed when you launch we're ready to go and it's just like i i didn't even know how to get paid so, so, so like, they're like we work on net 30 terms i'm like cool and i walk out and Great. google what is net 30 terms <laughs> did you really yeah i had no idea what that was uh and so you make that first delivery i know they're paying me in 30 days and i go wait how do they pay me in 30 days and i check showed up in the mail i go oh okay that's how i get paid all right <laughs> that's funny um but it was like definite butterflies, like adrenaline rush, where it's like the first kind of like, I think this coffee tastes good. Uh, I'm pretty confident in my own ability to taste coffees. 
does any, is anyone else going to be into it? And so that was kind of the first, it's an amazing co-op. Uh, and to have them get on board was like, okay, finally, it's not just this made up thing anymore. Like we have someone on board and then Hampton park co-op soon after that agreed that when we opened, they'd support and having a couple of customers like that on board gives me more confidence going into meetings to say, these are places that are going to carry it. And, um, a lot of people said, once you launch, like let's meet again, but until you launch, yeah. Yeah. I was with uh, you actually at a coffee shop where you were talking about your coffees to someone and they were like, yeah, you know, we have three locations, so we couldn't really carry your coffee because it's probably too small. Mm-hmm. And you have this, there's this perception that like you couldn't be big enough, but you are big. Yeah. Yeah. It's uh, that's the fortunate thing of Ken having this commercial sized roaster is, um, you know, coffee takes on the light roasted side, let's say 12 to 15 minutes to roast a 30 pound batch. And so when you have a roaster of that size, it seems small. 30 pounds doesn't seem that big, but with a 12 to 14 minute batch, you can get pretty efficient in the way you roast. Right. And, uh, and so most really small roasters, they'll start on like a three kilo making five pound batches. And I think that's the perception of a lot of small roasters. Uh, but the problem at our point or the difficulty in that perception is like, yes, we are a small roaster, but that doesn't limit our capabilities. And quite frankly, I wouldn't really pitch anybody if I wasn't totally confident that we'd be able to handle their business of course. without like all the hiccups. Cause during this whole time too, I'm listening to every business podcast I can find, every book I can read, anybody that'll talk to me. And the, this consistent theme is that obviously growth is hard to come by, but sometimes even more detrimental is growing too fast because you might make a customer angry that will never do business with you again. Right. And to be cautious about how you do that. You mentioned a book to me that you read. Uh, Was it Blue Ocean Strategy? Blue Ocean Strategy, yeah. Talk about that book because I think other entrepreneurs would be really interested in that story. Yeah, this was a recommendation from um, Kieran Folliard. Um, He started uh, Kieran's Pub, uh, the local, all these major influential bars, starts Two Gingers Whiskey, uh, sells his portion of those bars, launches two amazing guy, great stories. Now got the food building in Northeast. Uh, and he told me about Blue Ocean Strategy. And the basic concept that I will really poorly explain is that if you're entering a market of an existing category, so in my case, coffee, uh, if you just do the exact same thing that everybody else is doing in that category, you're competing in a red ocean. It's full of blood. Everybody's going after the same. All the sharks are going after the mm-hmm. same business. Uh, and so the goal is to find the blue ocean. What aren't people doing from uh, a product, a taste profile standpoint, to a marketing, to the to sales channels? How can you do things almost opposite of how everybody else is doing it to put yourself in an entirely separate category? And so that's that helped me a lot in like approaching different customers and sales channels and looking at opportunities from, am I just taking a slice of someone else's business that if they have more resources, they can easily take back? Or am I finding our own lanes that nobody's doing or uh, communicating in a way that no one's doing? Uh, And obviously we have a lot we can do better in that regard, but that's helped me a lot in framing my own thinking about how to approach customers and which customers to approach. You mentioned that you listened to some business podcasts. Are there any that you felt like were more helpful than others? Yeah, the, the classic ones, How I Built This. I've never talked to anybody that started a business that doesn't listen to How I Built This. Um, there are uh, 
the ones that stand out most tend to be the books because they're well researched and sure. well thought out. But and the podcasts I've noticed business podcasts end up having a very similar theme about uh, the the books I, I I listened to that I also liked outside of Blue Ocean Strategies. There's, there's one called Good to Great. It's an that is a great book, incredible book. Like that Marcus one. Buckingham, I think, is who wrote that. I'm just like alone in my car, going, "Oh my god, that's." He put it into like he put this thought that I may like he put it into words and it all makes sense now and it's even when you're a really small business thinking in those terms of like how to grow in a way that isn't like a spike of sales and down how to like really grow a, a business built to last is his other book that good to great kind of uh, builds on uh, that was an amazing one too that I I haven't met anybody that read that that one that's not a huge fan. So you have a couple strategies. You have selling coffee to um, grocery stores and mm-hmm. co-ops. You then had direct-to-consumer mm-hmm. mail order. That is like a completely different business. How did you stumble into that? That one's completely organic, and that was an intentional decision early on is really being uh, truthful with myself about what I'm good at and what I'm not. Uh Things I had experience in, things I knew that I could do at least well enough to grow is feed on the street sales. I'd done it for four years at that point at Boston Beer with Sam Adams, uh, and I knew that what, like especially grocery, what they're looking for in suppliers, and uh, obviously quality of product is the number one thing we focus on, and what they're looking for in margins and all that. Uh, The direct to consumer side, my thought process was just, well, if we continue to grow our retail presence, if our brand awareness continues to increase that, the uh, direct to consumer will just grow organically. And something I didn't expect was uh, our popularity on Instagram, because uh, my only experience in that before launching Folly is I started my own personal Instagram with the sole intention of learning how to use it. So all of my friends probably thought I was the most annoying person on Instagram for like <laughs> a year and a half just like hashtagging everything and with the really sole intention of I need to figure out how this thing works because I know it would be a very valuable thing in coffee. And uh, that, that's been a big help for us. And really, it's uh, that in our email list is our primary way of communicating anything we're doing. Are people finding you to actually make orders on Instagram? Yeah. Yeah. And that, it's, it's funny. Um, there was a distinct moment in time where the majority of our online orders switched from people that I knew personally to the, the weirdest moment was where I got that first order and I go, who is this person? I, I literally texted my mom. I was like, do, do you know so-and-so? <laughs> They're from here. And she's like, I, that doesn't. And I go, oh, I think this is. I think I made a sale from I Instagram. Think this is a customer customer. This is a totally random person. And uh, yeah, so like we launched just yesterday's new mugs and that's where we drove it. And it's funny because like our email list tends to be people that I know directly or indirectly. Sure. And, or at least I recognize the name because they've ordered before. Uh, but I did notice that launching on Instagram, we're seeing orders come from across the country, which is a really strange thing. And that's where kind of like your branding and your messaging is completely what people are basing their purchases on, which is crazy to me. So you have an Instagram following that's pretty significant. I think it's 15,000 last time I checked. Uh, yeah, 12,000 12, something. Um, and you had no brand recognition. So tell me what you think your secret sauce was. Did you, you mentioned hashtags. Did mm-hmm. you tag people in your posts? Mm-hmm. Like when you were trying to grow the brand, what strategy did you use? And was there a tipping point where all of a sudden it started to just go faster? Well, so first, um, I, we kind of, I had to kind of decide what our, 
I see a few different strategies on Instagram that I noticed as I was using it more myself and obviously it was following like every coffee, everything. Mm-hmm. Um, I see one consistent thing where like the pictures are all beautiful and the theme and the colors are all very consistent. You go to a page and you're like, wow, this is beautiful. Yep. And I think that works really well if you have a retail or storefront because you want people to go, that place is beautiful. That's where I want to be. I want to hang out there. It's aspirational. Exactly. Uh, Where it's like, we don't have a storefront, so that doesn't make sense. And then um, I see other brands that have a great following and they tend to do a lot of like behind the scenes work. And uh, that's what I resonated with. And being a wholesale roaster, I knew that that's how we would create a personal connection. So really it came down to like, I wanted to show people how we did things. I wanted to show them who we were and then just show them like the coffees and like just the quality of what we focus on. And that educational piece fits into that too. Yeah, exactly. And, and so, uh, the, like the nitty gritty of early on and how to grow is I went out and followed like every coffee person out there because you want your profile to show up. Hey, if you follow this person, you should also be following this person. So very intentional of all the local brands and all the different coffee brands we follow. And then looking up all the like relevant hashtags and Instagram lets you use, I believe up to 12 hashtags. 30. Is it 30 now? Yeah. Oh, they may have changed it. I'm way off then. It's been a, (laughs) I haven't really looked too deep into it as of late, but I need to. Uh, and varying, and so looking up relevant hashtags and making sure that the 12 at the time, that, and I guess I'm still using 12, that the size of the following of those hashtags range from small to big. And so that if, I, if you do hashtag coffee, the chances of landing on their top page for that hashtag is slim to none. Yeah, because it's 10 million so when, followers. when we're 300 followers, I did almost all small hyper niche hashtags so that we have a bigger chance that, yeah, we're not going to show up on a lot of people's top pages and or uh, show up on a lot of people's feeds for that. But if they're searching that, we're likely to. And then as we grow, making sure that the mix goes bigger and bigger. And so there were a couple posts that I a couple of posts that I noticed where we randomly ended up on top page and you see a nice little boost. But the, the biggest things really came from the, the organic PR we received in our first year, year and a half or year and eight months. And now, um, good food awards was a really big one, uh, which is a national competition of all things, food and beverage. Uh, and we won for one of the top 15 coffees in the country. And so just, we got some local PR from that. And what did I, that feel like to you? That was bizarre. That was crazy. So at this time, uh, April of 2018 is when Jeff joined the team. So Eastside Food Co-op was our first customer. Uh, He worked there. Every time I go, he's got these insane coffee questions, and I'm just like, who is this guy? And (laughs) he goes, how can I get into coffee? I just want to get in the industry. And it ended up being, I was like, I mean, we're launching in Lunds next week. I I could use help packaging and sampling. And so that's what I thought he was going to be. I thought he was going to, like, help me package and sample and then he's got this crazy palette. So we're cupping, uh, sampling different coffees together. And he, I'm like, this is nuts. Cause I, I think I have a nice refined palette and the things that he's tasting and the things he's picking up are crazy. And so over time I realized that this guy's palette is better than mine. And then the, the studying he's doing on his own out of just pure passion of buying coffee I just real and so he's by this point has a major influence on the coffees we're selecting, and it all tied up perfectly when we're submitting for Good Food Awards. And so we submit this fully washed Ethiopian Guji, really nice, like fruit forward, clean profile. Uh, we submit it, and it'd be like, oh, it'd be cool if we 
made it past the first round because Good Food Awards was something that in my mind in like our first five years of business, it'd be like, it'd be awesome to just be in the running for that mix. So we get the email back like, Hey, you made it past the preliminary round, like send all the information on the coffee to make sure it meets our standards of ethical sourcing and um, all that good stuff. And so we submit that back and sure enough, we get the email that we won and it's just like, I mean, it was us, uh, Spy House here in Minnesota. And then for some reason, Colorado's included in the Midwest. So it's three roasters out of the Midwest. And it's like, weird seeing our logo and name next to all these roasters that are just like my favorite in the country. And that, that was the first time for us that someone that's not us is telling, I mean, that must feel really great. It's, it was huge for us. Um, we, we, uh, gained some local PR. So like going back to the social media following, like city pages covered us really early on, which was really nice to give us a boost. And the, the catch 22 of, Instagram especially is like it's hard to get a following if you don't have a following. Yes, it's like the chicken or the chicken. (laughs) (laughs) So that that article kind of helped get us. It's like the one thousand mark. I think it's kind of a tipping point because somebody goes to it and sees four numbers and they're like, "Oh, okay, this is a legitimate." Yeah, it's a weird thing. I don't. It's it's like I go back and forth on whether I like it or not. (laughs) I think it actually is kind of the tipping point. If somebody's under a thousand in my brain, it's just like meh. Like they're just that's their personal thing. Yeah, whether you want to or not, it's yeah. just like instant. And so um, that was a nice to get that point. And then good food was big, and then um, yeah, that. And then after that, it's kind of hard to know what any one thing does to help grow it. Uh, but just staying active on it, trying to post at least once every day, once every two days, and not just posting to post. Like doing it to be intentional. That like, is this adding value or does this communicate something? Do you like it or hate it? Instagram. Yes. Uh, well, I love it because of what it's done for us. And uh, it, it teaches me more about uh, folly than I think anything else has in terms of just engagement, what people resonate with, the, the pictures that people really like, what they don't like. Uh, the thing I don't like about it is it can get like likes for likes sake are... It, getting a thousand likes on something isn't going to do anything for you if there's it, not something there. And so yeah. it's a love hate. It's it, it's like, it depends on the day. I definitely hear you. Cause I have that same love hate with myself yeah. just in the way that I use it and, you know, using it for business versus just personal. Sometimes I just want to post something cause I think it's cool and it's important to me, Yeah, but I know it's a lame post, but yeah. I do it anyway. Yeah. And That's then my, other times, my personal Instagram is just a hundred percent like this is funny. Yeah, <laughs> or just yeah, like I know I shouldn't really post this. It doesn't really make sense in the brand of what I'm doing, yeah. but I like it, and so therefore I'm going to do it. Here's my favorite. It's like what's 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 your brand? Oh, you mean Folly? No, no, no. What you? What's, what's your brand? <laughs> I'm like I don't. Everything you just said makes me hurt inside. <laughs> so I'm done and I'm out. Yeah. So now at this point you're in co-ops. You mentioned that you're in Lunds. Mm-hmm. You get into Kowalski's. Mm-hmm. What is the next wave for you? And so you can keep this train going. Yeah. Yeah. Um, this year has been great to us. Uh, we found some awesome uh, cafe uh, partners. The first was Stomping Grounds up in Staples. And this was really cool. They actually reached out to us. They found us through Instagram. So this is an example of how it can be great. They found us, said, hey, it looks like what you're doing is cool. Uh, can you send some samples? And so uh, they tasted our samples, loved them, and said, well, it, it matters to us what our customers think. And so... They did, they did something I never heard of is they have a super devoted uh, group of loyals and so they brought in twenty two of their loyals uh, and said hey 
uh, get you, get whatever drink you normally get with espresso. We're going to do what we currently use, and then we're going to do it with your espresso. Blind taste. Just tell us which one was your favorite. And they did that, and uh, 20 out of the 22 p- oh, nice. picked our espresso. And so they're like, well, that's enough for us. And so that was our first cafe we launched in, uh, which was just like a surreal moment. Drove up there, uh, up at Staples, and launched. It was just That was another one of those butterfly moments. And then... Um, and then uh, launched an angel food bakery in Minneapolis. They have a killer donut and bakery program. And uh, we launched in there, which was they're an awesome partner. Uh, Katie over there is just amazing yep. at what she's doing. And then Mug Shots down in Bloomington. They serve our dark roast and espresso. It's like uh, this oasis down there for coffee. Like It's hard to find a great cup of coffee. And then here in Bloomington, there's this co- shop doing everything right. And then uh, Mimi's in Litchfield is another one that found us. Um, really close to Silver Lake, like a half hour away, and uh, we launched there. And while this is all going on, we see the rise of cold brew coffee, Mm -hmm. and you managed to get yourself into that, too. Tell me (laughs) about that. So um, my buddy Brandon, who I just met through the coffee world, he's been in coffee for 10-plus years from every job, the barista, uh, cafe manager, coffee sales, and he approaches me around that, like, early 2018, so Folly's just getting off the ground and said, like, if I came to you and was willing to cold brew and keg your coffee, would you be interested in that? I'm like, yeah, obviously, that would be awesome. And he's like, do you want to do this with me? And at first, I didn't want to. Cold brew is extremely saturated. <clears throat> There's the shelves especially, like ready to drink, are packed, and it's a lot of companies with a lot of resources. And so I wasn't super pumped, especially because I was just starting to get folly off the ground. Uh, but he said two things. One, we're going to work with a group of specialty coffee roasters. Also, I want you to taste what I'm doing. He'd been working on cold brew recipes for over two years. Mm -hmm. Brought me the Folly House Bean cold brewed, and I was like, I've never tasted my coffee like this. And then the second thing was um, that we were only going to keg it, only going to serve it on tap. And he goes, I know you used to sell beer, so I feel like you'd probably be pretty good at selling cakes and i was like there now we're talking (laughs) and so um that one was from the time we first talked about it uh in like june uh we launched in september so it was about a three to four month process we found a community kitchen in st paul uh we found a couple of new roaster partners bootstrap uh folly was one of them obviously that we served um elixir out of philadelphia which is a good buddy of mine one of the best roasters in the country so that gave us a little credibility too sure and um and then we launched and that one is an interesting business because uh again it's kind of like folly where if you get somebody to taste it it's like the quality is like it's easy to notice that's a higher quality cold brew uh but also just focusing purely on tap it's like this is all we do people who serve cold brew on tap it's like well this is your specialty then it it makes it must be good Yeah. yeah So you now have like two full service businesses. Yeah. Yeah. And growing and trying to create more sales opportunities. What's the biggest challenge as you look at like the next year? Um, that's a good question. Um, there are logistical challenges that happen, but fortunately, uh, in Jeff with Folly and Brandon at Filterra, they are uh, very technically minded. I am not. 
<laughs> I have to work very hard at being organized. That's cool, though. You guys each have your lane. We have very tight lanes, and it has made those partnerships really, really good. And so from the logistical side, they're wizards at just making things work and figuring out how to make that run smoothly and just giving me the go-ahead that it's like, hey, we can get more business. The The toughest part uh, on the, the Folly side with, with hot coffee is um, – it's a super competitive market, especially in that cafe side. That's it's tough to get your foot in the door somewhere, even to get a meeting with a brand uh, and a coffee that not a lot of people have heard of. Um, and so that's been a really difficult part in a highly competitive market, being a small business uh, and using the resources we have. Now, we've partnered with like Berry Coffee and they do uh, equipment and full service. And that's really helped us be able to offer the full package to anyone, the, the, the equipment, the 24 or like the seven day a week service right, and all right. that's really helped us. And then... Uh, on the, the cold brew side, uh, the difficulty is the logistics side is keeping up with demand. And so it's weird that these two businesses have the stark opposite problems that Filtera is like, let's make sure that we don't take on too much too fast. And then Folly, it's like, bring it on. Like, yeah, let's, I can let's do find more and more that, and more. Yeah. If someone's listening to this podcast and they want to help you along, like what kind of resources or things would be helpful for the listener to know to help Folly Coffee expand? tell everyone you know about it (laughs) buy the coffee (laughs) yeah um tasting it it's it's a tough thing selling a food uh, food beverage product in a digital world because if i'm a clothing company you look at the picture and go i like that or i don't you look at ours and you go i like the branding or not and i what am i going to take their word on the coffee um and so not only buying the coffee, because it's like obviously that helps us, but like tasting it and being really intentional about that and like giving us feedback, but also spreading the word about it and just uh, any connections that can be made. Like we are down. Like it's three of us on Folly and then me and Brandon now Jeff's helping us at Filterra too. Uh, like we are down for any opportunities. And uh, we even though we're roasting the quality of coffee that is going to put us on that like nationally recognized scale, we don't want to do it in a pretentious way that I don't like the attitude of you should be honored to be drinking our coffee. I want it to be like, Hey, this is awesome. Have you ever tasted a coffee like this? And the self discovery. Exactly. It's, that's the fun thing about sampling, uh, especially grocery where most of the coffee is kind of your second Mm -hmm. wave style is giving a coffee to someone that has like some bright fruit notes or is just like, like peanut butter smooth. And they go, Whoa, like what, what did you do to this? Exactly like that first cup. That's a beautiful moment. You know what's weird? I just never even thought about this, but I, it's state fair time, and I had the opportunity to have the Swedish egg coffee mm. at the Salem Dining Hall. Yeah. And what they do is they pour their coffee through mm-hmm. the eggshells and strain it, and something about that process makes it a much smoother cup of coffee. And it's still, you know, Folgers or whatever it mm. is that they're using. But it really takes a lot of the bitterness out of it. I've heard that. I've never had it myself. I, I'm going to introduce you to out. that. <laughs> no, I'm going to introduce you to it. It was a pretty cool thing. And you really could taste the difference. Yeah. So anyway, I'm sure you're not you know, using eggshells to get the roast on your not coffee. Not these days. Um, it just reminded me that you can make a big difference just mm. in how you prepare it and, and the roasting of the beans. Um, it's been really fun to talk with you. You're a super smart kid. I keep calling you a smart kid. Um, and you're super enthusiastic about your product. And 
Are there other um, entrepreneurs locally that you just are like, oh, they are so smart? Because you seem like you've met with a lot of people. Ooh, putting me right on the spot there, huh? Um, you mentioned Kieran already, obviously. Yeah, Kieran. He's he's an incredible story, and the thing I love about him is that he's willing. I mean, he's met with me a couple different times, which is like, why the heck are you meeting? He met with me when we we're a few months in. It's like because someone met with him exactly, and that, so that's a really cool thing that I really do honestly take to heart. Um, and you'll meet with someone down the road. Yeah, everybody uh, will pay it forward when the time comes. Yeah the the Twin Cities food beverage community is super tight. Uh, for example, on the cold brew side, we just moved in with Bootlegger Kombucha. Mm-hmm. Uh, Jake Hanneman is the one that started that. And just the fact that someone who's got their own business lets us move in with him so we can cold brew in their space. He's doing awesome things on the kombucha side. Um, it's a countless number of people, and it's kind of hard to say any without excluding, you know, yeah, without and it takes a village, rambling right? off the whole list. Yeah. Well, I really appreciate you being on the Makers Podcast, and I can't wait to see what's next for you guys at Folly Coffee. <laughs> Thank you so much. 